These stories sometimes contain mature content and language for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So I was never arrested. I wasn't a rat or a snitch and just telling on all of his friends. I identified an enemy and uh, my prior military experience puts you into a, a, a different place of being with regard to taking on an enemy. You grab the most powerful weapons you can and you hit them with it. Welcome to Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. Each episode of this podcast digs deep into one person's story of change to reveal a little bit about how and why we make big changes in our lives and what can be learned from these experiences. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm, a consultancy that helps companies learn from their customers and consumers through deep conversation and connection, often told as stories like the one you'll hear on this podcast. So let's get the conversation started. Today's guest, Dr. Hal Bradley, is the author of Crisis Victory, a process to not only survive, but thrive in situations of crisis. And he should know, his life has been a sweeping saga of drug cartels, prison, DEA contracting, finally accepting Jesus and becoming an ordained minister. Today, he practices his faith in hospices, trap houses, and homeless camps. Join me for this remarkable story and see how you can apply this crisis victory system to your situation today. Dr. Bradley, welcome to Digging Deep. I'm very interested in hearing your story, but I'd like to start with where you are now and how you are applying crisis victory. The original crisis victory was a book that I designed, taking people through extreme crisis events and showing them how they can maneuver through such events. And at the end of it, come out with a more fulfilling life and a a life of betterment for other people. Let's start with the system that you created, Crisis Victory, and let's start with the three steps in that process. Can you take us through those three steps? Well, the most important thing is when you are encountered in a crisis event in your life, whatever the event may be, all of us at one point or another in our journey of life will come be confronted with some type of a crisis or at least a crisis unto ourselves. So the first step to that would be acceptance. And once we accept that we're in the middle of a crisis event, the next step that we do is starting to put what I call observation, recognition. Uh, How would we be able to not only survive the event, but the third step is to come out of the event successfully and beneficially. After you've had your acceptance, then you've created your observation or your path that you designed to direct your way through. Then you have a completion process where once you've uh, fulfilled successfully maneuvering through this crisis event, how can you utilize the knowledge and the experience to uh, gain a furtherance of what we can each contribute to our society, to our community, to the God that we serve, and uh, primarily also to ourselves. You you become renewed when you survive crisis events. I've had multiple near-death experiences in my life, and with each, uh, each passing experience, I always try to draw away something that I could recover from to benefit in in a futuristic way, not only myself, but uh, the people that I serve as an ordained minister and pastor of 23 years. It's it's, it's vitally important to take knowledge and share knowledge, introduce knowledge and uh, convey knowledge, if you will, to benefit other people as they experience their traumatic circumstances. You mentioned that once you've come through this crisis and you're in a victory status or state, that it's important to share and it's important to do good works. Can you talk to me about some of the works that you're doing now? 
I can, and thank you for that question very much. Um, the last 19 years of my life, up to the current day, I work with the homeless and uh, the destitute. I work with the addicted and the afflicted. I work with people that uh, survive from trap house to trap house, from camp to camp. I'm a certified hospice counselor. and I've been a certified hospice chaplain for 23 years of the 25 years I've been certified doing hospice work. So I'm also a hospice counselor to the dying in these homeless and uh, trap house environments. It's part of my own self-healing to be able to sit there and hold the hand of someone that's going through final stages of life, having no one else in their life around them. They're out there homeless for whatever purpose or reason, but they know that somebody with God's love is touching them in that moment and caring enough for them to be there in the moment. My doctoral studies were uh, done over my dissertation and took three years working in hospice ministry in the homeless camps. So I'm very, very dedicated to that environment of hospice caregiving. I also feed the homeless. I work with Salvation Army and every Friday I pick up loads of food and I take it to the camps and I take it to the trap houses. And it allows me a moment to also get into their environment and do what I call wellness checks. My concern, so many of the people, they, they have a very low self-esteem unto themselves in the environment they're in. So even to break into that environment is a, a magnificent victory. And it took a number of years to gain and acquire the trust relevant to their lifestyle scenarios to be trusted and allowed into their world. And speaking so, of trust, can you help my audience understand? They may not know what a trap house is. Can you describe that, please? A, a trap house is a house that's set up for people to purchase heroin, prostitutes to sell themselves. Uh, a lot of the homeless people, they'll drift in and out of those places. They call them couch homes also because it's just a place out of the weather where they can catch a night to be with. But mm -hmm. primarily trap houses or uh, drug houses and houses with prostitution. Do you think that without having your own path from crisis to victory, you would have been as prepared to give back in the way that you are? October 19th of 1994, 3.30 in the afternoon in a cell heading to federal prison for eight years. I had just left a courtroom. I fell to my knees and I became, I broke from that world. I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and I have never swayed from that moment on. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that the transformation reminds me of Saul before he became the apostle Paul when he was on the road to Damascus and how Jesus put the scales on his eyes. And when they were lifted at the house of Ananias, he had become a new creation. And I fully and completely remember receiving that gift of uh, the loving and caring. I was no longer a gangster or an outlaw. I was no longer working for the cartels and being involved in a, a very, very uh, sadistic, if you will, world. I, I know when the transformation happened and I've never faltered from it. So everything that I give, I always give him the glory. It's not about me. It's, I think of the countless nights I've sat in alleys in a rainstorm, putting an arm around a total stranger. And that person doesn't remember me. They remember that somebody cared about them. And this is a, a great reward because it's not an independent growth. It's a gift to God himself for what he gave me October 19th of 1994. Can we go back to what led you to October 19th, 1994? I don't want to dwell too long on, on the deep past, but I sure. think it informs that, um, that big change. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? I can. And actually, the change comes in a little bit further than that, if I could take it back a little bit more. It started in 1993, early 93. I was an international drug smuggler at the time and uh, was doing distribution up in the Pacific Northwest. 
and I was moving a quarter to a third of a ton of cocaine a month in this part of the world. And uh, I'd gone down to Sinaloa, Mexico to Culiacan to sit down with a member of the Sinaloa drug cartel, buying my way out, giving them and reestablishing the entire trade to them under condition that I could walk away. By then, as, as records will indicate, this, the county records I live in, I owned millions of dollars in real estate. I had companies and I was just starting to have my children. I did not want my children to grow up in that which I had been exposed to since a child living in those villages in the 1960s. So I made the trip. They made the commitment. I came back home and I had a third of a ton of cocaine and two soldiers sitting in my driveway. The next day, I turned them around, headed them back to Southern California, and I walked into the U.S. Attorney's Office to take on the drug cartels. So I was never arrested. I wasn't a rat or a snitch and just telling on all of his friends. I identified an enemy, and uh, my prior military experience puts you into a, a, a different place of being with regard to taking on an enemy. You grab the most powerful weapons you can, and you hit them with it. And that's exactly what started that. I did 19 months working for DEA and Customs uh, down in those countries, three different foreign countries, surviving them, including getting kidnapped down there and being tortured. I came out of all of that. But the true transformation came as the uh, process of turning around my former life and getting ready to create a newer life, a crisis victory event, if you will. You know, there's always going to be a great sacrifice when you come from a transitioning point of leaving one lifestyle of that degree of that intensity and coming into something that uh, gives God glory and, and honors your family and your community. So that was the motivating factor. The factor was I wanted out. They didn't let me out. I came at them and I survived it. And to take this one step further, I uh, just retired from that in 2018. I gave my country 17 years as a contractor for the Department of Justice, at the same time being a pastor of my own church and ministering to the homeless camps. Do you think that part of surviving torture, surviving these early crises, started to inform the steps of crisis victory? That, you know, that's an amazing question, because it's, it's not as easy to answer as some people might think. I grew up with a mother who was a den mother, a father who was an assistant scoutmaster. I grew up under really high moral standards and ethical standards. But at 15, I got caught smoking a cigarette in school, in high school. And back in 1969, they removed you from school for those offenses. My mom didn't want her child wandering the streets. By then, my parents were no longer together, and she was working in a dry cleaners, raising two smaller children. So she said, I have a friend who owns a mining camp in Durango, Mexico. Let's send him down there and let him learn a new culture and learn a new language and all that. But she didn't know she dropped me right into a cartel village, as fortune would have. But one of the kids that was my age, his father was a, was a heavy, a boss in an organized crime syndicate in Mexico. So I came up in that from a very early age, but I always had a moral standard. I always had an ethical walk, but you know, the uh, it, it's so hard to put into play at this point in time, because for me, it was a natural stage or process of my life. Mm -hmm. I lived in a village of about 200 people. They all wore peasant clothing. Their buildings were made of adobe. There was only one power line going through the village and that went to the mining camp where I was at. So it was an extremely impoverished and, uh, and beautiful environment. It's it's very interesting to me when I think about the steps and some of what's published about them. Yes. There's this idea of expecting to survive, accessing your resources, yes. and then using a calm 
mind and what you call crystal clarity to focus on utilizing those resources and taking action. I'm wondering where the initial seed for that thinking came from, at which step in your varied crisis experiences, I would call them. Where do you think that started to foment a little bit? Good question. I think it actually formulated when I started realizing the severity of life in general, based on uh, an environment of an extreme change from what I had been adapted to, raised up in. And uh, once reality comes into play, then the silliness tends to leave us. Even at 15 years of age, when I sat there and watched my first man executed, shot in the head right in front of me, you know, I'm eating dinner. And the first time I climbed on my burrow and I rode along the poppy fields there on the Zacatecas Durango border and sitting in an Indian camp with the Chowari Indians, all of a sudden it became real. It wasn't so much exciting and fascinating. This was real. And once that factor settled into me, um, it started uh, forming a different type of way, if you will, that I was looking at the path that I was going to design for my future. Had my brother not been shot in Vietnam at the time I was down there, I probably wouldn't have returned for, for a few more years. I was going to ask you about your return. How did you transition from the, you know, you're very deep in the business, it sounds like. Well, at that did... age, I, I was still being groomed. I was only 15 and 16. Okay. I got word that my brother had been shot in Vietnam. They got word to me down at the village. So I immediately headed stateside. I went to Edmonds Community College outside of Seattle and uh, put in for my GED program. And three days after I was 17, I was in Fort Knox, Kentucky in basic combat training. I entered immediately. Three days after I was 17, I was a paratrooper within six months of being 17. Years so old. you enlisted, you chose. You bet okay. I did. I went, I, I went to the Bremerton Naval Hospital and saw my brother lying in a bed there. And I was a 16 and a half year old kid looking at a whole ward full of men who had honorably served and were combat wounded, mm -hmm. young, young people. And it just affected me so strongly that I walked out of there and I just wanted to, to serve. Did you do a tour in oh, Vietnam and then come back? Three years. I didn't go to Vietnam. I went to Germany. I, I was trained to go to Vietnam. I was in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and they pulled me off that flight because I had a brother. The war was winding down. My brother had been shot. So what they did is transferred me to Germany instead. And I did uh, almost two years in Germany. Now, at that time, were you still engaged with the cartels at that point? Or did you transition back to that after your service? It never left me. It never left me, dear. <laughs> when I was uh, in the military, my thoughts were to go back someday and visit the village because those people really loved me. They cared for me. And it's an earth type of love. These are people that don't show you their fancy cars or have big swing pools in their backyards. The cartels have that. But uh, what I always remembered was me coming in as a total stranger and the passion and compassion that was given to me by an entire village. And yes, I wanted to return to that. I wanted to feel that again. So I want to go back to this moment of clarity that you had where you accepted Jesus Christ. How did you get from that moment to becoming a pastor? Well, that's a, another good question. You asked really good questions. Thank you. Uh, I entered into the uh, federal prison system from that cell within days. I was a transfer holding over point. And when I arrived down there, I went to the chapel, uh, told them that I needed a Bible. And uh, one of the aides that were in there said, well, you know, we have study courses to put a, put you into seminary while you're in here, if that is your direction. And I decided to go ahead and sign up that and did two and a half years of seminary while I was in there. I fell ill at that prison and was flown to a medical center in Springfield, Missouri. 
where I ended up doing all but the last year of my time in prison. And that's where I became a certified hospice counselor. And my job in the federal prison was taking other prisoners through the dying process. So I took 26 uh, inmates through that actual process. What's interesting to note on that is the last year and a half of my studies were done in those death rooms. So it would be me alone with the dying person getting ready to, to leave their body. And I would be studying and cramming like crazy doing my studies in there. And you know, the funny part about that was when I graduated seminary and they came to the prison and ordained me, that afternoon, Johnny Gambino, the Gambino Crime Syndicate, actually threw a big feast for me out on the prison yard because everybody knew I wasn't carrying a Bible around to hide behind it. They knew that, that I'd truly been called. Do you think that your approach to crisis victory only applies to these extreme crises, the ones that you have described, or do you think that people can take away from this ways to manage more everyday crises that they go through? Everybody experiences some level of a crisis event in a lifetime. And I believe that the book can be constructive. In my creation of the book, I used the extreme uh, lifestyle that I had survived out of. And it was to show that even under extreme measure, we can we can reverse that process and become something better as a result of surviving it. But yes, the, the question is easy to answer in that regard because everybody experiences an event. The loss of a parent, the loss of a loved one, their, your wife or husband or any number of things, the loss of a job, it can be a major crisis to you. First and foremost thing you need to do is get real with the crisis event accept it, recognize it, identify it, and then start putting forth your options that you self-create to remove you from that event and to catapult you into a more successful life. I thought it was very interesting when going back through the steps that being fully present was a big part of it. And it reminded me a little bit of uh, Ken Keyes and the path to higher consciousness and the notion that I can't really take action and use my resources that I have today if I'm very anxious about the outcome and, and right. you know, kind of distracted by negative notions of failure and your first step is, you know, expect to survive. Yes. So, so can you talk a little bit about that idea of being fully present? In all components of our life, there are stages. And the most important thing to do is to not try to jump over a step, but to identify each step in its magnitude and then fulfill that step before you venture into the next. Okay. And then the one of the other steps that I was interested in is you've characterized it in your writings as accessing resources, but then you talk about it a little bit as tapping into your own gifts. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those gifts are that people can tap into? Yes. Every single one of us has something that has been given to us that we specialize in, in some way or form of another. And what we need to do is focus on that option of something that we're comfortable with, that we are familiar with in the way that we approach it and to identify it and to develop it and to move on with it to the next step, to the next option. And the biggest thing that I have seen problem with people failing that are coming out of uh, extreme crisis events is they tend to overload or try to catch up. There's no such thing as catching up in life. Every single day, life becomes another, uh, another journey as we wake up to it. So if you can remove that type of thinking and put yourself into the, into the instant, into the moment, then you're going to become far more successful, far rap more rapidly, complete the goal sets that you make for yourself. Would you briefly describe each of the four books that you've written and how they contribute to the whole series? 
Okay, uh, Crisis Victory is book number one that was created to teach people how to maneuver through extreme crisis events. Crisis Victory 2, A Fox in the Lion's Den, was the actual story in my autobiography of being a smuggler and a distributor, a pastor, and a Department of Justice contractor for decades, for two decades. Crisis Victory 3 that I have right now is called Surviving a Double Life. And what I'm doing there, it's a compilation of all kinds of people who have survived crisis events, and this is their story. And it's going to be fascinating when it releases. I'm still working on it. But I just did a Ted Bundy interview, a lady that survived Ted Bundy in 1973 when she was 13. So, so it's got a really good flavor and a good mix. But book number four is so exciting because what these are, this is uh, series number one, episode number one of action, adventure, drama. Uh, it's totally fictionalized. I'm creating a story. Uh, based on all of my experiences and skills of life and creating this Harold Brandon character who takes on the cartels. He, he brings a war to them. And just this afternoon, I completed and sent off to my publisher, Operation Tucson Cartel, the very first of many to come. Tell me a little bit about the television series that's in uh, discussions right now. Yeah, great. There's a company called Voyage Media Corporation. We got a copy of the book to them. They said, this would make an amazing TV series. And it'll be something like a cross between Ozark and Narcos with a little flavor of religion tossed in there. Here's this guy laying hands on the, the poor people. And the next minute he's out there buying six tons of cocaine. That's so an exciting has- development. Do you think it, it will there be aspects to it that talk about the crisis victory process and then the process of giving back to society? You know, over the months of working with the screenplay writers, uh, yeah, we, we've woven all of that into that. So it, it will definitely be uh, a significant part. What's the one piece of advice that you would give to someone facing a crisis today, large or small? The most important thing to do is try to be objectively in a positive sense that when you recover from this event, Look at the knowledge that life has granted you throughout the experience of the event. And how can I use this to benefit my future onward going life? Thank you for joining us today on Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm. At Insight Farm, we help companies make their products better through conversation and connection with consumers, often told as stories like the one you've heard today. If you'd like us to help you with consumer research, or if you'd like to participate in this podcast and tell your story, reach out at www.insightfarm.com. We look forward to the conversation.